Thank you, Matt. Good morning, Redeemer Church. How are you today? I am good, thank you for asking. For those of you joining us online, we're glad you're here. We're glad to see everybody in the service today. We hope that you're blessed by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And for those of you visiting with us, we have a guest card. You can find it in the seat beside you or on the seat back in front of you. You can use the QR code. We would love to hear from you. And uh, maybe you're a member here that you have a prayer request and you'd like the elders and the prayer team to pray for you. On the other side of this, there's a prayer request form. If you don't want to fill it out here in, in church, you can go online to RedeemerRC.com and you can fill out either your guest information or your prayer request. We'd love to hear from you either way. Now, this is the third Sunday of the month. And here at Redeemer, it's a really special treat because the whole family gets to worship together. Ordinarily, we have classes for our younger students and they go out, but on the third Sunday, we're here as a church family and we get to take communion at the end of the service. And so we're just excited to, to be together as a church family today. Um, a few months ago, I was reading a book by Arthur Glasser entitled Announcing the Kingdom. I'd read it in seminary and I kind of dusted it off and was reading it again devotionally. And I ran across these statements by him and then a reference to Psalm 85. One of the things I love about the Word of God is, is you can spend a lot of time in it and you can, maybe you've read the Psalms through 10 times in your lifetime and you read them and you're blessed by them, but every once in a while, one of them just comes off the page at you and it's like, this is for me at this moment of my life. And that's what happened with me with Psalm 85. It's like, where has this psalm been all my life? Well, it's right here in the Word of God, but this is a time that God spoke to my heart. And so I remember thinking when this, you know, when, when I first read this psalm recently, man, the next time that Shannon asked me to preach, I sure hope I get to do a standalone sermon and preach Psalm 85. And so when he did ask me to preach, I said, am I preaching a standalone or part of a series? And he says, you're preaching part of a series. I was like, oh my goodness, what's the series? And he says, well, it's the book of Psalms. So I said, okay, great, this, this is awesome. And I said, is Psalm 85 taken? He said, no, it's not, it's yours. So I get to preach it today. So either look behind me on the screen here or get out your Bible or maybe your, your mobile app um, and let's read Psalm 85. And may, may God just minister to you as you hear the reading of his word. You, Lord, showed favor to your land you restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned away from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. 
Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. What a beautiful psalm. And I can't wait to to preach that here in a minute. The title of my message is not very original. It's, It's basically the title of the psalm, Revive Us Again. Revive Us Again, O Lord. When I was a child, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, in the, in the buckle of the Bible Belt. And when I was little, now some of you kids are going to have no idea what I'm talking about here. But when I was a kid, we would have these outdoor tent revivals. And for some reason, they decided to have them in the hottest months of the summer, right? And so there'd be this outdoor tent. Sometimes there'd be fans. There'd be, they'd put sawdust on the floor and all these folding chairs. And then there'd be a platform similar to this. So our churches would come together and we'd have a revival service. And I can remember as a kid, I grew up in a pretty legalistic environment, so I wasn't able to go to movies as a kid. So a a church revival was like the most interesting and entertaining thing that would happen in my life. But what was really cool is that churches would come together and we'd sing hymns, and it was kind of like a wash, rinse, repeat kind of thing. We'd sing some hymns, a preacher would get up to preach, and have a call to to the altar, and then we'd take a break and we'd start all over again, and sometimes you'd hear from three or four preachers. And see, back then, preachers had a little different style. You've probably heard of fire and brimstone preaching. I lived that as a kid. And it was really interesting because it would be in the heat of summer, and all the pastors would be in suits and ties, and they'd start preaching, and they'd get wound up. And before you know it, for dramatic effect, they'd pause and they'd undo their their coat and they'd place it on a chair there by the pulpit. And they'd start preaching more and more. And before you know it, the tie is being loosened. And then all of a sudden, they're rolling up their sleeves. Their faces are turning red, sweat's pouring from their brow. And then they would pull out a handkerchief. Okay, yes, I still carry a handkerchief. I'm old school. I know it. Um, But they would pull out a handkerchief and they'd start mopping their brow. And people be amening and praising the Lord and preach it. And then all of a sudden that pastor, when he really got going, he would take it and start waving it and preach and preach. And I'll tell you, it was mesmerizing. (laughs) Now I do remember, I do remember that there were times when people's lives were greatly changed. There were times when people who had been living backslidden from the Lord would come crying to the altar, begging God to forgive them, and rededicating their lives to him. I remember when people would come weeping and give their lives to Jesus Christ for the first time. So revival meetings, we don't really see those much anymore, but, but there's something special there for me. And, and when I read this about revive us again, I thought, Could it be that this is a word for Redeemer today? You see, those churches understood the reality that God's people tend to wander from intimacy with him, not only as individuals, but as a community. Calling people back to a right relationship with God was and is necessary. 
The problem was that often these meetings didn't result in lasting change in the community of faith. Maybe individuals' lives were changed, but the church as a whole needed a revival meeting again the next year because lasting change wasn't happening. Arthur Glasser, in his book, Announcing the Kingdom, said, we should not presume to regard ourselves as superior to the Israelites. They reflect the moral and ethical perversity that characterizes all human beings. The most godly among the redeemed will candidly confess to having discovered that abiding in fellowship with Yahweh hangs on the slenderest of threads. Have you ever felt that way? That this intimate relationship with Yahweh, our God, hangs on the slenderest of threads. And in this series, Exhale, here's the reality that we need to inhale as the church here at Redeemer. Number one, we love God. There's no doubt in my mind that the people I'm looking at this morning that you love God. You wouldn't be here. We love God. But our hearts are prone to wander, aren't they? There's an old hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish once we came to Christ that there was this intimacy that flooded us and never left us. But the truth of the matter is, we are hardwired as sinners to wander and rebel against God. Did you know that? It's the default. It's harder to maintain intimacy than it is to wander away sometimes. So this is the, the reality that we're inhaling. And the third thing is, we can't revive ourselves. We can't revive ourselves. Just like Adam in the garden, when God formed him from the dust of the ground, the Bible says that God breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Friends, as, as you know that you love God and you try to walk with him, that default to wonder, you want to be able to fix yourself, but in true reality, only God can revive his people. Only God. Arthur Glasser goes on to say, Genuine spiritual renewal cannot be programmed. It is the gift of God to God's people. So how do God's people experience a true revival and a spiritual renewal? How does that happen? Well, I think Psalm 85 holds some answers for us. It's not the only place, but it certainly makes a clear path for us to this intimacy and this spiritual renewal once again. As we look at the Psalms, it's interesting that several writers contributed over many years to the collection we now know as the Psalms. When I was a kid, I thought David wrote every one of them. And I was a little disappointed when I realized he only wrote about half of them. But there are other people like David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, Solomon, Moses, Himan, Ethan, and a handful of anonymous authors who all made unique contributions to this amazing hymnal of Israel. This was a hymnal for God's people. Even if you look at the beginning of the psalm there, it says, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Psalm 85 was not written by, from the perspective of an individual worshiper. I heard somebody today say, I read Psalm 42 as a deer pants 
for water so my soul longs after you. They read that in preparation for today's message. Well, that's an individual worshiper crying out to God to do something in their life, but this is different. The sons of Korah wrote 11 psalms, and this one is a worship song to be sung in a congregation of God's people as they gather to worship him. This is a community crying out to God for something. Many people believe that Psalm 85 was written in the early days of the return of the nation from Israel after they were in captivity for seven years as a punishment for their sin. Whether that's true or not, you could plug this psalm into just about anywhere in the history of Israel and it would be appropriate. Because the people of Israel had a tendency to make a covenant with God and then begin to re slowly rebel against God and get to a point where God had to judge their sin, then they would confess their sins and come back into right relationship with God. If you read Judges, it's just a continuous cycle that they can't seem to break. And here, they want to break that generational cycle. And that's what this psalm is about. So let's, there's really three points to my message today. The first one, and it's very simple, Lord, you've done it before. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and see where God has done amazing things and praise him for his past goodness. And then number two, Lord, would you do it again? Lord, would you do it again? And we'll unpack that in just a minute. And third, and to me, this is my take on how we respond. Lord, we will make two promises and this is about faith to embrace spiritual renewal. So would you journey with me today as we unpack this psalm together? First of all, Lord, you've done it before. What do they praise him for? Let's look at verse 1 through 3. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and you covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned away your fierce anger. Praise God for that. What are they saying that God has done? What are they praising him for? First of all, for his favor. Lord, you began to bless your people once again. We wandered from you. You punished us. We lived in Babylon in slavery and exile. But God, you began to show your favor to us once again. You began to bless us again. And in spite of our failings and our wanderings, Lord, you restored us. You restored what we lost. Now, isn't it amazing that we can mess up so terribly wrong and God can redeem and restore? I mean, that's the God that we serve. And then thirdly, they praised him for his forgiveness. Lord, you didn't have to, but you forgave us. We didn't deserve it, but you did. And then fourth, mercy. Lord, you could have but you didn't. Lord, you could have lowered the boom on us, but you didn't do that. You extended your mercy toward us. And friends, isn't that the story of our journey? Many of us came to Christ when we were young. Some of us came to Christ when we were older and we had a lot of miles on us. We made a lot of mistakes. And there were times we thought, could God forgive me? Could God love somebody like me? Truth is, is, God's been longing to show you his favor. He's been longing to restore what was lost, that image that was marred by our sin. He has sought to restore us to himself. 
He longs to forgive you. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he longs to show his mercy and loving kindness to you. Lord, you could have, you could have lowered the boom on me and my sin and my rebellion, but praise God that you didn't. So the first part of this psalm is saying, Lord, you've done it before. We've experienced it. We know it to be true. Throughout our history with you, you have done it. You've, re- you've brought restoration to us. And so that's the hope that they anchor this, this corporate worship song in, is we're going to start with praising God for what he's already done. And then they move to the second part. And I love this. To me, this is really the heart of this psalm. Lord, would you do it again? Would you restore that intimacy to us as a community of faith? Once again, Lord, would you give us another chance? Let's look at verse 4 through 11. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Oh, man, I hope not. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. So as we look at that passage together, we see that the first cry out to God is, God, restore us again. Restore is from a Hebrew word there that means to turn back or away from, to pull in again, to refresh, to return, literally turn us. So when they're saying, God, restore us again, God, turn us. Turn us away from our wandering. Turn us back to intimacy with you. Are you in that moment right now where you need God to turn you back from something? Is there some way that you are wayward and rebelling against him and people may not even know it? Friends, I spent three or four years, when I was in the fire department, I spent three or four years kind of checked out on God. And if you looked at me, you would think he's doing all the right things. I went to church every Sunday. I taught an eighth grade class. I didn't do some of the things or watch some of the things that some of the other firefighters watched. I tried to to live an upright life, but my soul was far from God. I was angry. I was disappointed. There had been a death of a vision, and so I just coasted for a while. I'm so thankful that those three years didn't last forever, and I'm so thankful that I didn't create some kind of generational problem by living in that state and raising my children. I am grateful that when we come to God and we ask him to turn us back, he will. He will. Turn us not only back towards you, but turn us back from our full exposure to your righteous anger and displeasure. Did you know that those that don't know Christ are objects of wrath? But because you and I know Christ, he has turned us back from his wrath, and we are now what? objects of mercy. God did that. He is able to restore us. 
And it's another cry to God, don't let your anger toward our waywardness and rebellion spill over into other generations. Lord, end it here. And maybe that's a moment that you're at. God, I've really messed up. I don't want that to spill over to generations. I don't want your anger toward my sinfulness and my rebellion to, to spill over into other generations. Would you end that here and now? So as we pray for God to restore us again, maybe God is speaking to your heart somewhere where he needs to help you turn back or away from something, somewhere where God needs to pull you in close again or literally to turn you around. The next thing he says in verse 6 and 7 is, revive us again. Revive us again. The Hebrew word there means to live, to keep or make alive, to give or promise life, to nourish up, to preserve, to quicken, to recover or repair, to be whole. Friend, do you need to be revived today? Is there a resurrection or a breathing of life into an inspiration that needs to happen in your life? Does something need to be recovered or repaired that's broken or lost? God is able to breathe new life into your soul once again. Lord, breathe your life into our lungs so your people can rejoice in you. That's what the psalmist says. Why are you doing this? Why are you reviving us? So we can rejoice in you once again. Is your heart in a place where you're rejoicing in God? Or are you more sad and, and concerned about your failures and you've lost that joy of your salvation? David did. When he sinned against the Lord, he said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. One of the ways that God causes us to rejoice again is to breathe new life into our soul. And maybe you're running on fumes in your Christian life today and you need a fresh infusion of the breath of God in your lungs. And then they tell him, Lord, put your unfailing love on full display. What would that look like? I thought about that. What does God's unfailing love on full display look like? What does it look like in your life and what does it look like in the life of the congregation? They longed for that and so they said, God, revive us yet again. And then the last thing they ask him to do in context of reviving them is grant us your salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not from us. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It is a gift from God. And they said, Lord, grant us your salvation. As, as our hearts turn back to you and as you breathe new life in us, grant us your salvation. And then the third thing about, Lord, would you do it again, is speak to us again. Did you know there was a time in the life of Israel where God didn't speak to his people for hundreds of years? They were so wayward and rebellious and the Bible even said when Samuel was born, the prophet Samuel, the word of God was rare in those days. Where people had been used to hearing from God as they were in covenant with him, they no longer heard his voice. Have you been in that situation in your life? Where you've gone through a time of isolation and wilderness and you may pray and you feel like those prayers are hitting the ceiling and you don't hear the voice of God? Maybe 
It's because you need to be restored and revived so that you can hear the voice of God again. And this congregation, these sons of Korah said, we are ready to listen now, Lord. Speak your peace over us. Correct and instruct us with your wisdom to keep us from returning to the folly of our rebellion. Again, the hard wiring to turn, return to our folly and our rebellion. That's what we do as sinful people. But God's voice in our lives can keep us from returning to our folly. So are you listening? Is there anything between your soul and your Savior? Are you spending time in his word? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Are you meditating on the things of God so that he can speak to your soul? Are you so busy or so wayward that you just don't hear his voice anymore? And you come to church like I did, but you're just coasting. But friends, I want to tell you that you don't achieve intimacy with God unless you hear his voice. You don't achieve intimacy with God unless you train your ear to listen to what he tells you to do. So God, would you correct and instruct us with your wisdom, keep us from returning to the folly of our former ways. And then lastly, meet us again. Maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you showed up at church and you're like, God, I feel so distant from you right now. I'm going to keep being faithful. I'm going to keep doing what I need to do. But God, I, I just don't feel intimacy with you. And maybe you need a fresh encounter with God Almighty in your life. And what I love about God is at one time, there was a holy of holies and only one priest could go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and, and confess their own sins and the sins of the people. Otherwise, people had to be outside in the outer court with not direct access to God. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? That veil in the temple that separated people from the glory of God was rent in two from the top to the bottom. God brought his salvation near he made it possible for us to enter through the curtain, not on our own merits, but through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave us direct access to God. So when God meets us, he brings his salvation near. And then they say, God, when you meet us again, let your glory dwell in our land. And maybe in their minds, they thought back to the wilderness wanderings. Do you remember how God dwelled with his people? A, a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night, and they could always see when God was dwelling among his people. But you know, there came a point in Israel's history where the glory of the Lord departed from his people, and they no longer saw evidence of the glory of God dwelling in their land. But the psalmist cries out, God, meet us again. Bring your salvation near and let your glory come with it. Let it dwell in our land. Let it permeate our lives, may we see and experience the glory of God. And then my favorite part of this whole passage is when they say, draw us into that perfect place of fellowship and communion. And how is it described? Let's look at verse 9 through 11, or let's look at verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Picture this in your mind. There is a place 
of meeting God where his, right, his love, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness meet together, where his righteousness and his peace kiss each other. And it says faithfulness springs up from the ground and God's righteousness looks down from heaven. So there's this meeting place, this locus, where the steadfast love, the righteousness, the faithfulness, the peace of God all come together. And what does that remind you of? You see, maybe the Israelites thought of that meeting place as the temple. Well, if only we had the temple God can meet us in that place where these things all come together. But, you know, they didn't always have the luxury of that, and they certainly didn't know the rest of the story like you and I do. That place that I'm talking about should look very familiar to you. Where have we seen this great convergence of God's eternal virtues before? Oh, yes, of course. On a hill called Golgotha. That's where we saw this all come together. That's where we saw God's love and faithfulness meet, his righteousness and peace kiss each other in that lonely, glorious space between heaven and earth where God's one and only Son, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's where those four things met together in one place, in one man, our God and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And as he who knew no sin became sin for us, something, an exchange happened. We, who knew all sin, became the righteousness of God. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His son on that cross became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53 says that the chastisement, that punishment, that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So God's faithfulness, his steadfast love, his righteousness, his peace meet in the cross, and that is where you and I first met God, is it not? That's where intimacy with God was restored. That's where we, as the people of God, have met God. He has met us yet again. But see, there's another place where these four things meet. It's called the church, the body of Christ here on earth. Ephesians 2 says that we are all together becoming a dwelling, a temple in which God dwells by his spirit. So these things came together in the cross, but they are lived out in the community of faith. And so you may be thinking, well, Keith, this is great. I've, I've been encouraged by this. But what does this have to do with Redeemer Church? I mean, really. I'm really glad you asked that. Um, I think it's a fair question. What I want to do is very briefly look at two case studies of two churches that we find in the Scripture, see what we can learn, and see if this is appropriate for us today. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. We're going to be looking at 1 through 5. In the book of Revelation, God reveals some things to John. 
And one of the things that Jesus uh, revealed to him was, I have a message for these seven churches in Asia, and I want you to deliver this message for me. And I want you to know, these were physical, historical churches that existed in Asia. To our knowledge, none of them are still around today. But these, this was a direct word for these churches. So if you take it in context, these are physical churches that Jesus Christ has a personal message for through his servant John. But as the word of God is, it's not only applies to them, it's also instructive for the church today. So there's something that we need to learn from this. We're going to look at two case studies. Do God's people need to be restored and revived? Look at Revelation 2, 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Wow, that's great. This church gets an A, right? Not quite. Let's keep reading. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That word love is literally agapen, which is from the word agape, and it means God's love for people. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken God's love for people that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So this church has got doing all these things right, and yet they've lost their first love. And what does God tell them to do? Come back, restore it, turn it back, find that love once again, or else I'm going to have to remove your lampstand because you're to be a light and a lamp with the love of God for, for people. And so this is what God does. So the first case study is, Man, they had all these things that they were doing right, but something was missing. They needed to be restored. And then let's look together at Revelation 3, verse 1 through 3. The angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Think about that for a minute. You, you look like you're alive, but really you're dead. You need to wake up. You need to be revived. So we see a church, a physical church, a case study in Revelation, where God says, you need to be restored, you've lost your first love, and you need to be revived, you're just a shell of what you're supposed to be. And so, friends, as we look at those, what can we learn from, from them? Let me ask you, if the Lord Jesus Christ were to do an assessment of Redeemer Church, what would he say? Think about that for a moment. I honestly don't know. I know what I... I could imagine. And here's what I think God would say. Redeemer Church, 
you're faithful to the gospel. You preach it, you try to live it, you are a gospel-centered church. You stay true to the message of the gospel. Redeemer, you persevere. I've seen your church history, I've seen how you've hung in there even when you thought about giving up, and, and I'm blessing you, you persevere. Redeemer, you've always been on mission, even when you were a tiny little church plant, you gave generously to mission. Well done, Redeemer. I, I in my mind, if I think that's what he would say, but I honestly don't know. But what's the other side of that coin? Would God say, Redeemer, you've lost your first love. You do all these good things for me, but where's the love? Where's the love for each other? Where's the true love for the community that expresses itself in worship and service? Maybe God would say, Redeemer, you know, on the outside you look good, but, but on the inside you need to be revived. I don't know what he would say, but I'm willing to find out. I want to know how we as a church can experience revival and spiritual renewal that would transform our lives and our witness in this community. This Psalm 85 is a word for Redeemer Church. So let me ask you a question. What are we as a church willing to do to experience a time of revival and spiritual renewal? I think the last few verses of the psalm kind of give us a little bit of guidance here says in verse 13, in verse 12 and 13, the Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. You see, there is this way of righteousness and it goes, God prepares the path for us. And so I think we could make God two commitments, two promises and in faith, embracing spiritual renewal. The first one is, will we, we will receive all that you choose to give. Think about that for a minute. Open hands, open hearts. Lord, we will receive all that you choose to give us as a church body. Whatever blessings, whatever insight you want to bestow on us, Lord, we will receive that. So as you reveal yourself, as you speak to us and dwell with us, we will respond and we'll receive whatever you choose to give. And then secondly, as you show us the way, Lord, we will follow. As you show us the way, we will follow. There is this way of righteousness that God has set out for us. And Jesus Christ blazed that trail for us. But Redeemer Church, we are responsible to meet God in that place and then fellowship and walk with him, not only as individuals, but as a church. So that's my exhortation to you today. And I'm going to use an old, I'm going to use an old hymn, one verse of an old hymn to encourage you today. This is a hymn by W.P. Mackey. And you may have sung this, Revive us again, fill each heart with your love, May each soul be rekindled with fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. That's my prayer for Redeemer. Do we need to be restored and revived? I believe so. So can we 
trust God enough to give us what we need and then for us to walk faithfully and obediently to him. Well, friends, we are about to enter a time of communion, and and this is part of that remembering and praising God for his, his past goodness and grace to us. Jesus, on the night that he was crucified, he said, I'm going to do something that I want you to remember. And for generations, for 2,000 years, we've been remembering that place where Jesus gave his life for us, that locus of those four things, the love of God, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his peace. Now, this is a meal for believers here at Redeemer. So whether you're a member or not, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are welcome to join us at the table. If you've not yet entered into a relationship with Christ, I want to say God bless you for being here today. I would be happy to talk with you after the service and explain what it means to have a relationship with Christ. But until then, I would just ask you to watch God's people come and partake and remember the sacrifice of our Lord. Matthew 26 says, and and you can stand with me, I'll read this passage, and then you can come and take the elements. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let us take the elements together and remember his death until he comes. Lord, you search me how you know me you perceive my every thought from afar all my wanderings still you love me king of glory you pursue my anxious heart even when I'm not your
Thank you for worshiping with us today. Thank you, those who are joining us online. Let me leave you with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.